Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, it's just Peter and I talking about luxury wine pricing and what it communicates to consumers. And last week, we re-released Dissecting the Price of Luxury Wines, which was uh, recorded almost two years ago based on the book that Peter wrote with Liz Tosh, Luxury Wine Marketing, which we'll have a link in the show notes. And we wanted to talk about some new and emergent evidence and research that Peter's been doing as he uh, recently presented at Wine to Wine out in Verona around wine pricing and what it communicates. So Peter, it's just you and me back in the saddle. Back to the original format of X Chateau. I know some people say they miss us just, you know, talking the two of us, but uh, we have all these guests that we need to get on the show. They clearly don't know any better. <laughs> clearly. So let's jump right into it. So obviously we released the previous episode where we covered kind of like a bunch of the key factors and the pricing segmentations, but let's really jump into what does wine price communicate and let's draw a clear differentiation between commercial wines versus fine wines. And I guess before we even jump into that, we should redefine both of those terms, commercial wines and fine wines. Yeah. Well, and just for context around what this presentation originally was, This was a presentation I developed for the Wine to Wine conference last November, which is in Verona. It's part of like the broader Vin Italy complex of things, but a business of wine conference where the theme last year was communication. So I thought, what could I do that would be core to luxury wine marketing, but also core to communication that would be different and interesting? And so I thought, oh, you know, something that actually isn't really in the book or at least builds on luxury wine marketing is what does the price of fine wine communicate to people, right? Because so much more when, to your point about defining commercial or mass market wines versus fine wine and how it's different, I think those more commercial wines are very substitutable, right? Like when you talk about your commodities, when you talk about selling a like Saint-Emilion, you know, to the grocery stores in France, it's like, well, okay, it's Saint-Emilion. What's the uh, price of the wine? It almost doesn't really matter of anything else, right? It's like that category, that price. Here's where it fits on the shelf. Here's how I'll pay for it. Whereas fine wine and luxury wines is, I believe, a subset of fine wine. But I know Pauline at Arini Global will differ in our um, thoughts on that matter. And I think we're going to have a chat about that sometime soon as well. But I think it's different because the brand is equally, if not more important than the wine itself for how consumers view it. The people who buy those wines, especially luxury wines, are generally usually different than people who are buying wine from the grocery stores and things of that nature. And they're usually sold in different channels, right? They're mostly fine wine retail that focuses on wine. It's high-end restaurants and often direct-to-consumer from the wineries, especially wineries that do more of that, like in the U.S. and Australia. So big differentiator is the channel and what's sold. So commercial wines are going to be sold at grocery stores, 
possibly direct, but not so much. And also at restaurants, but probably a lower tier of restaurants. It's a little bit more of a commodity. Maybe chain restaurants is a great example of where you'd find some commercial wines that want something consistent across the whole portfolio of restaurants. So fine wine then, you said direct to consumer, fine wine retailers, as well as at higher end restaurants. And so you're going to have two different like price brackets there for the on-premise versus off-premise. Yeah. So different places where it's sold, different people, usually different consumers, and that the brand is so much more important than it is for more mass market wines. Talk about the people real quick. So how would you differentiate those two large groups in terms of those consumer bases in terms of either gender or age? I believe the research shows that women buy most of the wine, you know, at least in the U.S., and they buy the majority of the wine tends to be at a lower price point. And when you talk about wine collecting or the luxury wine buyer, they tend to be skew older, skew male. Although that's changing, there is more and more women who are getting involved in wine investment and wine collecting than there was 10 or 20 years ago. But it's generally older and male. So in terms of, yeah, obviously we talked about price for commercial wines, but for price for fine wine, it's different. And so why exactly is the price dynamics different than that of commercial wine outside of those things we just covered? What are the key things that are like driving those? Well, it does cost more to make fine wine because you do have to pay for higher end farming, more hand touch potentially, but more expensive land coming from a great unique place where the land could be much more expensive, which drives your cost of goods up. The packaging usually is more expensive too, whether that's bottles or labels or closure that leaves the cost to be more and then it's just the willingness to pay it does have more prestige especially as you get to the luxury levels where brand is very important there's a prestige element and a you know a luxury element to these wines more everyday luxury since wine isn't super expensive it can be more of an everyday luxury compared to other luxury goods but that tends to make it a lot more expensive than something that's competing down to marginal cost. How is the brand making the wine less substitutable? Well, I'd say when you have a brand, when a brand means something to someone, then it becomes less substitutable. So you can have a brand like Champagne, which is known for celebration, is known for high quality, and that brand is so valuable that the region of Champagne is very protective of it with their trademarks and very litigious if you try to violate that trademark. But because it means something and people are willing to pay more, because when you think of the process of how Champagne is made, it's very similar to many traditional methods, sparkling wines around the world, but good bottle of champagne, you're paying at least 50 bucks a bottle versus you can buy a pretty good bottle of traditional method sparkling wine made in California for $25. I'm thinking like Rotor Estates, non-vintage. And why? Because is the quality that much better? I actually am blind, confuse the two sometimes. <laughs> I don't think that's uncommon. Maybe I'm just a bad taster, but the brand of champagne has that value. Similarly, like one of the biggest brands of the world for luxury wine is DRC or Domaine Romani Conti, right? It's like it defines Burgundy, it defines sort of luxury in the sense of that is supposed to be the pinnacle of red Burgundy and Pinot Noir and drink the best. Pinot Noirs of the world, yet when someone drinks DRC, it means something different and it's something special because of its reputation that drives its brand value. I am 
curious as we talk about like where things are sold in terms of the fine wine retailers or fine dining or even direct to consumer, it seems like there's all potentially because there's three major channels there. There's potentially a lot more lift and effort to be successful across those three channels. And you obviously some of these wines scarcity production levels are a lot lower. So they maybe need to spend a lot more money to like focus in on those channels or only play in some of those channels or for some of those or have some regionality to those channels as well. Is that part of the price calculation for why it's so expensive for those? Because there's more effort in developing those three different channels? Does the cost of sales and marketing being potentially higher? Because instead of going through one gatekeeper at a Safeway or Costco or whatnot and blowing out pallets of wine, especially if you're selling direct to consumer, it's sort of hand touch one-on-one or just hitting a few people at a time and potentially having the cost. I think that can be true, but a lot of times the reputation of fine wine can permeate and go through word of mouth and or things like the press, which can hit a lot of people at the same time. So it's not always the case that the sales and marketing costs are a lot more expensive for finer luxury wine. It really is more about the perception of the brand and what people are therefore willing to pay for it because it is, as you said, made in smaller quantities. So it's more rare and scarce, generally speaking, especially you know coming from a defined place that's usually special. And then generally higher quality. And so people tend to be willing to pay more for higher quality. And the combination of all those things and its reputation over time and how it establishes its brand will lead to that brand value of people willing to pay thousands of dollars for a bottle of DRC, yet even its nearest competitor like Loire, significantly less, right? It might still be thousands, but like significantly fewer thousands for others, uh, you know, coming up from there. Some other big negotiants, uh, Grand Cru wine for a few hundred dollars versus like five or $10,000. The producer's brand trumping the classification system where you have top producers, potentially village level, or is more expensive than another major producer's Grand Cru level. And for sure, there's some difference in like the actual wine and the juice in the bottle, but it's probably not 10 or 100 times different, right? Let's dive into, for fine wine specifically, what price does actually communicate to the consumer? So where is the best place to start? I think there's a lot of elements. I sort of mentioned five in this presentation. The first one being the value proposition for consumers. So when you set a price as a fine winery or luxury winery, you're telling your customer, this is the value prop or sort of like the deal I'm giving you, right? And so that could be like, hey, this is very expensive and going to be the best wine in the world, right? Like, uh, I think Harlan and Opus One in California, when they first launched, they both launched at the top of the range, right? They're saying this is going to be the best wine out there. And that's our value proposition for you. It's going to be really expensive and you're going to pay for it. Or you could be saying like, hey, I'm going to position this as like a value with high QPR, quality price ratio for my customers, right? And so like everyone in Napa might be charging $200 a bottle and this is the same quality, but I'm going to sell it for $150. Or even within your portfolio, originally, at Costa Brown, their smallest production wine four barrel was made as like a thank you for the longest tenure customers, even though customers still had to pay for it. <laughs> and it was highly allocated. It was priced the same originally as all the other single vineyard wines as a thank you to customers, even though that wine sold for multiples in the secondary market because of its scarcity and 
theoretic, better quality. Would those be the two main vectors is like that you're trying to deliver comparison to your competitors? What is like quality to price ratio? Or is it really just stating like, like how do you think about that in terms of when someone goes to set their prices or even move their prices over time? Like as they start to move their prices, either I'm assuming in most cases up, but starts to communicate something. If they had people that were originally looking at a wine that was getting a good quality to price ratio, but if that wine starts to ratchet more and more expensive, I'm assuming they're going to start to have their customers, some customer base start to fall off and try to garner new customers as they attract. I think, yeah, when you change that value prop, so what you're talking about is when you change price, sometimes you'll change the value prop, especially when you change the price quickly, right? If you double your price overnight, all of a sudden you may be going for something that is high QPR to something that is market price or even overpriced relative to quality. And your customers are going to view that very differently. And they may, as you said, turn over. And so I think as you change price, you got to look at is the value proposition you're giving to your customers changing, right? And that's going to change behavior because when that value proposition remains the same, you know, we recently talked to Charlie Fu, a collector in LA, who, you know, said that when prices are changing slowly and it's still within the limit of being a good quote unquote value for him, he's still buying. Once it hits a certain point where he no longer feels that it's good value, so it could be changing very slowly, but it hits a price point where now he doesn't feel like the value's there, then he stops buying, right? Because the value proposition to him has changed based on a change of price. And so there is a function of, well, obviously you're going to change that value prop across those thresholds more easily if you change in a very big way versus more incremental. But even that incremental change could hit there over time because if you're just raising your price every year and other people aren't, people could see a lot more value in other producers. In your second point, you had mentioned about expected quality, and I'm curious to dive in that a little bit more. Sometimes see wines that will get like rave reviews, like a couple of vintages of Dominus, where that wine goes for 2x what it normally goes for. But it's just for that vintage. And then other wines, they get a couple of really awesome scores, and then that just sets a new bar for what that wine is going to cost. And it just kind of goes up from there. And I'm curious on how those things are related to like the quality that's potentially expected of what's coming from the bottle. Well, I think when we talk about pricing here, we're talking about what the winery is communicating to its consumers by how it sets price. And so when it sets a price, it does give an expectation of a certain level of quality, both compared to other producers in your region or space, and even within the wines of the world and within your portfolio even, right? But people, I think when they get And some of these categories and things that communicate, they definitely overlap to some degree. But when people buy a $100 bottle of wine, they're going to expect it to be pretty good, right? Whether you're buying two-buck chuck, you know that it's actually, there is expected quality there too. You're expecting it to be not very good, right? And when it is good, then you're pleasantly surprised. On the other hand, when you're paying up a large amount of money for one bottle of wine and it doesn't deliver, however you define that delivery, then you really are disappointing and it's not there. But there is an expectation as you cross certain price thresholds that the quality really needs to be there. So when you're paying, to use our previous example, like $10,000 for a bottle of DRC, 
you're expecting it to be like magnificent and transcendent. Maybe that's why I, well, one, I can't afford to buy those wines, but why I don't buy a lot of those wines is because I don't know that it's going to give me that transcendent experience above if I bought a bottle for a few hundred dollars, you know? I'm curious on the expected quality though, in terms of talking about, there's an expectation that these wines are farmed well and so much that they don't even have to say anything on their label about how they're from. They're just, it seems like it's assumed, you know, and I know plenty of cult Napa wine producers that farm biodynamically, dry farm and all that jazz. And same thing in Burgundy and Champagne. There's a bunch of producers that are farming very, very well, but they just don't go through the certification. They don't have to even talk about it. It's just a foregone like assumption in what you expect when you're paying this much money for a bottle of wine, which may or may not be true. Yeah. And it was interesting. And when I was doing the research for luxury wine marketing, we built this database of almost all the wine or all the wines we could find that were rated by Wine Spectator, $100 retail and above. It was like 8,000 different wines. There was a positive correlation between price and score. As the wines got more expensive, the average score did go up. Oh, it's not the inverse. It's not the scores drove the price up. It's the price went up. Therefore, presumably quality went up. So then the scores went up. It's actually in reverse order. Well, I'm not saying that there's causation there, but I think over the long run, there has to be a correlation because when you're too out of whack, right? Because people expect as they're paying more money that the quality is better. And if that quality doesn't match, then people are going to stop buying it, right? And stop paying. So that wine is going to go away or get repriced or whatever. And so that will keep the correlation of price and quality positive in the long run. There are things you were mentioning before when people get scores that the price changes. I have noticed that when wines get 100 points, which is normally from like the wine advocate, Robert Parker, but could also be Jeb Dunnick or Galonia Venice. They also give some hundreds versus like the Spectator or Decanter, which is very rare to get 100. When I see them in the marketplace at retail, like you said, they might be selling for 150 normally, but then that vintage will be trading for like 300. And that seems to be like a price point where just based on quality, you can get to in terms of price, at least in the secondary market, where people think this is a really high quality wine, it got 100 points, so people are willing to pay 300 bucks a bottle for it. But there's a lot of wines priced above that, even if they don't get 100 points, right? And that's where that brand reputation starts to go in. So that quality and quality expectation kind of gets you to, let's say, $300 or so. And then after that, and I think this is my next point here of what price communicates, then leads to brand reputation, right? And the brand reputation of like our example we keep talking about, like DRC, is that it's the best and it's almost like, well, (laughs) and the bottle itself in some circles, like for counterfeiters, is worth a lot of money, right? (laughs) But to have the bottle in your cellar bestows a sense of privilege, a sense of joy that you can share with others or show off, right? For some people that just because it it costs that much and that reputation is so elevated that it means something. And so some people try to establish that right out of the gate. Like you mentioned Opus One or Harlan, they just go like, hey, we're going to be the most expensive in the market when they both of those brands initially launched. It's like whatever the price is plus whatever. And they kind of like went after that. But other people try to build there over time, right? And so interesting point though, you're saying that this is kind of like the other two tenants only get you so far. And then at some point you have to work on that brand building. The quality itself will take you so far. I've met a lot of winemakers in my time and many of them often say like, well, I make the best wine and so it should just sell. 
and sell for a lot of money, right? And yes, to some degree, quality is obviously important and is like the key driver, but it only takes you so far. Once that quality and assumed quality starts to embed itself in the reputation of the brand, then you can really start to have pricing power and start to elevate yourself above that $300 mark or above where other people are positioned in your category. It has more value in that it has a sense of meaning. The brand stands for something and that quality is certainly part of it, but it could be more than that that people are willing to pay for. And then how does that factor in? So we're often talking about very singular wines when you have more than one wine that you're making or at a winery, which is usually the case. And so how does that factor in terms of how do those wines play together? I'm assuming the brand transcends everything. Yeah, right. The brand transcends everything. But as you're setting a price, the price is for a specific wine, right? And so for a specific wine, both within your portfolio or compared to other wines, there is a sense of relative quality that's established when you set a price, right? So a lot of wineries, especially in, let's say, the New World or California or the U.S. and whatnot, but really globally, they might say my Appalachian wine is the cheapest and supposed to be the lowest quality wine. Then I have a single vineyard set that is higher or premier crew or whatnot. And then my ground crew wines or my maybe sometimes the estate wines are the most expensive. And theoretically, you're charging the most for the estate wine and it's the highest quality. And or maybe there is no designation or category for what it is, but you're saying that this wine is the best in my portfolio and I'm going to make it the most expensive and therefore, like, I'm telling my customers that this is my best wine and that's why it's the most expensive and you should buy it if you want the best. Right. And that could be also relative to other wines around the world. So one of the examples that was in luxury wine marketing was Gaia out of Piedmont, the Barbaresco producer back in the early 70s. They doubled the price of their wine to match the prices of top Bordeaux and Burgundy to say, hey, our wines are top-notch in the world and we want to be compared to the best in the world at which that time and, and still today was Bordeaux and Burgundy and not compared to others in our region. And so that was that relative quality, trying to establish their relative quality against other global players and benchmark. So they weren't necessarily trying to establish themselves as the most expensive wine in Piedmont, but they were trying to basically use benchmark comparisons for other fine wine that was being collected by consumers at that time to kind of get them in the same. Right. If you're willing to pay whatever the price was at the time for Burgundy or, or Bordeaux, then you should be willing to pay that for my wine, which is also one of the best wines in the world, right? Now, that also probably does make you the most expensive wine <laughs> in your category in Barbaresco at the time as well. Right, but there's also, I mean, they have a pretty wide portfolio uh, and I'm assuming some of their wines that were, were kind of like benchmark at that kind of like first growth levels and some would be at lower levels in comparison to those. Yeah, I think their portfolio was smaller back in the early 70s, but <laughs> yeah. And then the fifth element of what price communicates when you set it is sort of what your expectation is that people are willing to pay, right? The consumer's willingness to pay because if you set a price where you don't expect people to actually buy the wine, then you're setting yourself up for failure and you don't really have a sustainable business model, right? So People need to be willing to pay that price you're setting. And you have to think about and consider that as a winery when you're setting that price. Like, will people be willing to pay for that? So, like, one of the examples from a really 
high-end perspective is probably going to not pronounce the name right, but Liber Potter in Bordeaux, which is a relatively small producer that's got an interesting story behind it. They're trying to make what they consider like pre-phylloxera or original Bordeaux wines. So like with pre-phylloxera varieties and on its own rootstock and whatnot in Bordeaux. So to your point, very expensive to make because the vines probably aren't going to live that long with phylloxera and, and all that. But so they set 2015 vintage, one of their first releases of this type of wine. They only made 550 bottles. And so they ran a Dutch auction for their buyers to determine what price people would be willing to pay for it. And it ended up being 30,000 euros a bottle, which is like, well, you know, one of the most expensive wines in the world for like a current release wine. So for people who don't know, can you explain what a Dutch auction is versus a typical auction? So a normal auction bids up in price where people are outbidding each other until they hit the max price that someone's willing to pay. The Dutch auction starts really high and goes down. And so people are bidding down until someone's actually, or the price is coming down until someone's willing to actually pay for that price. So they must have started very high and then got to 30,000 euros a bottle and then people were finally willing to buy the wine. I mean, it's a super interesting model. I'm curious, I wonder what their original starting price was. <laughs> so, but no. I think their original wines didn't have this story of pre and all that. So I think it was a normal priced, maybe still high priced wine. But since they started doing this, it's become very expensive. All right. So we have these like five things that price can communicate. So value proposition, expected quality, brand reputation, relative quality, either to other wines or inside the portfolio. And consumer's willingness to pay. The consumer's willingness to pay seems like the one that's, uh, especially if a brand is just launching, it seems like the one where you're kind of taking a, obviously you have market research and competitors and things like that. Know if you're getting a certain fruit from a certain location, but it seems like that's the one where the first time out, it's kind of a little bit of a gamble in terms of what you go, what people are going to really pay for, because it's really hard to do research about what people are willing to pay for until they actually have to put money on the line. For sure, which is why people usually start a little lower, I think, to get people to try it and then build up from there, or people end up with a lot of wine stuck in their warehouse. One of the ways to understand how your pricing actually works is actually seeing what happens to after you release it, right? And after that, other people have it on the secondary market. And there's a, with this category of wine, there is a strong secondary market tracked by numerous indices, like, for example, LiveX. So I'm curious, and what does the secondary market pricing really, what does that communication loop back to the winery and help inform winery decisions around pricing power? Right, because first, price is not price, right? In terms of a singular, when you set a price as a winery, you want to have a suggested retail price, which you hope the wine will sell for consistently across all wine stores and retail. But each retailer takes a different margin, right? And they may have different costs because they're buying in different volumes. And so that average selling price in retail may be different. And then that price will be different when you have a restaurant markup. Right. So you have the actual price it's selling at restaurants versus at retail. If they're in both price is a little more complicated than a single number. And then to your point, there's a secondary market for wines that are more collectible or investable that are traded. And so it's not simple winery sells to a wholesaler. Well, at least in the U.S. sells to a wholesaler and then a retailer and then the consumer or, you know, in other parts of the world, wineries sells to some wholesaler or importer and then sells to the consumer. Here, the winery goes to, let's say, a retailer or a merchant who sells it to another one, who then sells it to another one that then either 
trades amongst this network of merchants, and that happens in Ivex, which we interviewed CEO James Miles for earlier. Or they may go to auction if they're really fine and rare wines and trade in that as a secondary market price in terms of setting price for fine and rare wines that you don't really know where the price is and want to discover the price, so you're auctioning it off to get the highest bidder. And that secondary market is kind of, and because these wines tend to be rare and hard to get, and that's why they're traded, they're not as easily available, and so you have to pay more for the wines. I mean, this even happens with like shoes or cars sometimes too, right? At a car dealer, if the car is really hot and in stock, you're not even getting the suggested retail price, or even at, sometimes we would normally expect to get a discount from that. You're sometimes paying a premium for the car, and that's basically that secondary market price. And that really can help give a good indication for wineries of like, well, what are people willing to pay? But I think the key to think about here is to the volume that's being transacted in the secondary price as well, because often it's just a really small sliver of volume. So let's say you make 100 bottles, maybe two or five or 10 are trading in the secondary market, but you're selling 100, right? So let's say you're selling it all direct to consumer, you're selling 100 bottles at $100, and the secondary market is at 200 if you try to sell 100 bottles at $200, you might not actually find those 100 customers if you're only selling one each at 200 versus the five or 10 that are selling for 200 Michael Cruz brought that up in our episode when we were talking about Ultramarine, which is a cult collected uh, traditional method sparkling wine in California. And he was like, yeah, I see these wines on auction that go for 3x the release price, but I don't know how many people are actually buying them. And he's like, is it really worth me alienating my consumer base by jacking up the prices because there's a couple people setting this benchmark as opposed to it actually being the true volume of people that are buying from me directly? And I already have them, you know, as long as I'm making good margins on that. Slowly, the prices are going up, I guess, year over year, but it's, it's not these dramatic prices that you're seeing in the secondary market. So he looked at that data and it's like, hey, it's just not enough volume there for it to be impactful for me to like make pricing decisions on that are going to really skyrocket my overall release prices. And that is where LiveX has some great data on volume that actually transacts, right? Because when you look at Wine Searcher, it's only what is being offered and that's not always what's actually transacting. So it's a different set of data that you have to consider and think through. Those chateaus, it's great because there's such a volume to those wines and a price point. So that's really geared up to that. But for these smaller wineries, like either in Napa Cult Wines or even some of the stuff in Piedmont or Burgundy, it's like it's a much smaller production volumes. So maybe not that transaction volume is not as transparent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And just so people know, the full presentation and I think even the video of the presentation is on the Wine to Wine website. I don't remember what the availability is for everyone or if there's some login, but I, I know it is available there. When I went to the show last November, I was eager to go to a lot of the other different talks because it was super insightful, I thought, and a really useful conference for mostly Italian wineries, but really, I think all people in the wine business is something that would be useful conference if you're interested in the business of wine. And we can put a link to that in our show notes, assuming it's easily accessible to the public. All right, well, we can uh, we can wrap up this episode here, which is you know great on the heels of our library release on the pricing. And so I think these two kind of give a good uh, update of where we started off on the heels of your book being released and now after this uh, presentation that you made in November. So thank you, Peter, for being in the hot seat and being the person to carry us through on this episode. Uh, greatly appreciate it. No problem. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. 
Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.